As we've seen uh, over the last few weeks, each of us had a starting point for faith, and it was, for most of us, it was in childhood. Whether we got it from our parents or another adult in our lives, or whether we came to faith conclusions on our own as we were kids, it was back then typically based upon a very limited understanding and some limited observations, but you came to a faith. But ultimately, it was a childhood faith, and we all landed somewhere. We all had some kind of childhood faith. But by the time we were in our 20s, we began to develop our own worldview as related to God. And for, for most of us, somewhere in childhood, in a church or in a synagogue or in some other worship place, one or both of our parents kind of came along and told us, well, this is who we are and this is what we believe. Here's what you're supposed to believe. Here's what God is like. Here's how you're supposed to behave here in church or wherever. And growing up, we probably all heard some version of God rewards good people and punishes bad people. You've probably also heard, God hears your prayers. You might have even heard, red or yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I don't know what songs you sang growing up. I could sing some of the songs that I sang growing up, but you guys would think I was crazy. But the point is, somebody kind of handed you a faith when you were little. It's part of that childhood faith. Somewhere along the way, you were taught to pray to God and ask him to forgive you of your sin. You probably weren't even sure what that meant as a child, but you prayed it. And maybe you prayed for the forgiveness of your sins as part of a family prayer. Did you have a family prayer like this? Now I lay me down to sleep. You guys know the prayer? Pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Looking back as I was kind of preparing, I thought about that. And I thought, you know, I even knew that prayer. And I'm positive. So as you don't know, I'm Jewish. Like My parents did not teach me that prayer. But I, but I must have heard it on television or, or somewhere because I knew the prayer. And by the way, I also was terrified of that prayer because you were talking about death. And in, in the Jewish culture, you don't do that. It, it's a, actually one of the comedian's jokes is whenever you say something about death or sickness in, in the Jewish culture, you whisper it. Oh, did you hear about Aunt Susan? She's sick. Yeah, so you whisper it. I don't, just, I don't know why that is. But I didn't want to even think about dying before I wake, so I would never say that. But that was one of those generic family prayers in which we ask God to forgive our sins. And maybe you grew up in a church or maybe you grew up in a home where you prayed the Lord's Prayer. I was at a, um, a funeral mass yesterday for a friend's mother, um, and they prayed the Lord's Prayer. And, and you, if you've asked me about it, you've heard me rant about the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer. It's a recipe for prayer. But again, that's just practice of the church. And, and, and maybe you asked God in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But whatever your, your specific experience was, it was kind of all just lumped together and there was really no thought to it or no explanation to it. But as a kid, it was good enough because kids' sins are usually pretty minor, Right? I mean, you remember your kid's sins? You fought with your brother or your sister, or you didn't clean your room. Like, those are the kid's sins. I, I was smart to my mom or my dad. God, please forgive me for filling whatever minor offense it is. I forgot to be the dog, or I didn't clean up. And then you were good to go. But then we became adults, and our sins got bigger. And our willingness to take responsibility for those sins kind of got smaller as we went along. 
And then we started to feel more guilt and, and more shame about the things we'd done. And as that happened, our willingness to admit the sin went down even further. And indeed, it was transformed over time into kind of this self-justifying recategorization of your, of your sin as a mistake. We talked about that. We're not sinners. We're mistakers now. We talked about that in week two. And, and even when we haven't made a conscious decision as to how to consider our sins, most of us do our best to just try to avoid thinking about some of the really bad things or really dumb things or really ill-advised things we've done in the past. Those things that we're not very proud of only to feel the painful sting of reminder whenever we hear a trigger name or we travel to or through a, a city or a town or we go to a restaurant or a, see a movie that we remember from those days in which we were a little bit out of control. And sometimes even when you smell, you know, smell is an incredibly powerful thing. And sometimes smells can take you right back to the moment when you first smelled it. When I was in college, um, my fraternity used to clean the football stadium, Florida Field, the swamp, after game day. This is just a picture from one of the end zones to give you just a sense. 90,000 people. It is just massive. And we used to go in on Sunday morning at 7.30 with rakes and garbage bags. And we'd have to start up at the top row, which was row 90. And we would work our way. We'd, we'd line up down the stairs all the way down to row one. And then we'd work our right way around the entire bowl with rakes and garbage bags, kind of raking up whatever was left over on the ground after Saturday game day. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this or if you've ever been to a college football game or whatnot, but lots of stuff gets brought into college football games that probably shouldn't be there. Well, having to clean up all those baked, spilled adult beverages and whatever happens as a result of having too much of those adult beverages. And then there were, it was, you know, I went to school in Gainesville, which is the deep South. And so there's a lot of cups of tobacco spittle that were kind of left over. And so you cleaned all of that after it was baked in the Florida sun all day Saturday. And so it gave rise to many an unpleasant reminder smell. And so there were certain guys that I kind of grew up with that have that reminder smell haunting them for the rest of their lives. And they would just as soon forget all of that. And it brings us to the question, what, what can wash away our sin? What can wash away our sin? And that's what we're going to be talking about in today's message that we're calling nothing but nothing but. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for another opportunity where we can come together as your people, come together as the called out community, the ecclesia, the church, so that we can worship together and fellowship together and study your word so that we can understand you better. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use this time to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to draw us closer to you. God, we love you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So while it's true that there are some things that we've done that we're ashamed of, but we can laugh about later, there, there are actually some things that when we hear a particular story, we, we can't wait to go, oh, you think that's bad. Where do I tell you what I did, right? I mean, so we do that and we have this funny sin story, but that's not all the time. And there are some things we can't ever forget or find 
funny in any way. So those things we kind of carry around secretly, quietly, like this perpetual cloud that hangs over us. If you guys remember Winnie the Pooh, I always think about Eeyore in those situations, who's always like, hey, Pooh, and he always had that dark cloud over his head. Well, that's like the sin that kind of hangs over us. But here's the question. What if, what if we could wash away your sin? What if we could wash away your mistake or your guilt or your shame or your pain or whatever word you would use to describe the way it makes you feel? Because even though just about all of us get to a point where we convince ourselves that we really shouldn't feel all that bad about our sins, we have to do that. Because if we don't convince ourselves of that, you can't go on. So we all do that. And we learn to say things like this. Tell me if you've ever said this to anybody. Well, nobody's perfect, right? Or I'm only human, or then, of course, you can elevate that to the next level. I, was, I wasn't in my right mind. Or I, I'd had too much to drink. Or, or I wasn't myself. Or I was young. Or I was upset. Or I was just lonely. Or I was broke. What do you want me to do? Or I didn't know any better. We make these excuses. And even when those things are true, acknowledging that those things are true and embracing it as such doesn't wash it away. It still remains a cloud. It still hangs over you. And it's not overwhelming. And it doesn't keep you from getting out of bed usually. But it just follows you around, kind of like a shadow. But at the core of that struggle, as you try to sort out, is there a faith part to all of this? Or if you're thinking about restarting your faith or or starting over with an adult faith, the issue in All of that really comes down to one thing. It comes down to forgiveness. Because what you're really trying to figure out is, is there a way to forgive myself so that once I forgive myself, it is done? And if it ever comes back, I can just go, no, 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 no. It's done. That has been forgiven. That doesn't bother me anymore. Is there a way that we could forgive ourselves so that we clear out all that? Guilt, all the guilt over having done the things not so well. We wish that we could have done them better. Is there something that would wash away all of the yick, ick, the gross stuff that we've just been carrying around for so long? And then layer on top of that the confusion that surrounds the question, am I a mistaker or am I a sinner? I've had so many conversations with people over the years who really struggle with the concept of all of us being sinners. And they say, well, I'm not a sinner. I, well, yeah, I'm human and I make mistakes, but I'm, you know, that doesn't make me a bad person. Well, you know, we deal with this. And so we're, we're constantly on this loop in our, in our brains. Did I make the mistake I made because I lacked information or because something was missing in, in me that day? Or do I just need to admit I didn't make a mistake? I committed a sin. Because as we discussed, you can correct a mistake. Yeah, you're, you're driving west and you missed your left-hand turn. That's a mistake. But you go to the next place, you U-turn and you go back. That's a mistake. You, need, you, you can correct a mistake, but you need to deal with a sin. You can't correct a sin. Because if we sin, it's ours. We have to own the sins that we commit. And when we own the sin, it doesn't help. It makes us feel worse. And it's hard to get over that. What can wash away our sin? Can anything really wash away our sin? Well, I mean, there's not 
a terribly simple answer. I don't have one for you. And I don't think you want a simple answer because the sin is so heavy and it's so, it weighs down on you so much that if I gave you a simple answer, you'd go, it doesn't seem adequate. See, if you're an adult, and most of you here are, some of you are not. Thank you kids for being here. But you want an adult starting point to your faith. I mean, that's where you need to start. And we're not talking about childhood indiscretions. We're talking about adult stuff. And we know we can't go back and undo the adult stuff or go back and relive your, your, child, your, your kid's early life or the way that you behaved when they were small or yelled all that much. You can't go back and fix that. And, and even though you've tried, you, you can't even fix it going forward. But is there a way to wash away our gross, embarrassing, shameful, dangerous self-destructive sin. Now, as you consider your adult starting point for the Christian faith, think about this. Every religious system, every faith system in the world, every faith belief, every religious book, every ancient writing about faith will offer you a solution to this dilemma. All, All religions will address this. Now, some of you, maybe many of you, have tried to make it go away by embracing some of those religious faiths or religious traditions. In fact, maybe of you, maybe some of you try to make it go away as you embrace Christianity, but you don't really understand what that means, and it doesn't seem to wash away your sin or your guilt or your shame or your mistake or whatever it is, does it? It doesn't work. And that's because every religious system offers a solution. Every religious system offers a solution. But there's only been one person who offered not a solution, but offered himself as the solution. See, every religious system offers some sort of, well, here's how you deal with your guilt, or here's how you deal with your shame, or here's how you deal with your past, or here's how you move forward. I mean, they all do that. But in the history of mankind, only one person has ever stepped up and said, I don't simply have a solution for you. I am the solution for you. Now, whoever would say that is either out of their mind, insane, crazy, or they're lying. Or maybe, just maybe, we should pay attention to that person because we're adults. And everything we've tried so far to wash away our sin hasn't really worked. Now, this brings us to the apostle John. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself in his gospel, the gospel of John. He said, the one whom Jesus loved. He never names himself, but it's kind of a weird way of doing it, but that's what he did. But John personally knew Jesus. John John was what most people believe is like Jesus' best friend, if if you could say that. He was the one closest to him among the 12. In fact, John was so close to Jesus, that at the crucifixion, Jesus asked John, not Jesus's own siblings. Remember, Mark was one of Jesus's siblings. He had other siblings. He asked John to take care of his mother, to take care of Mary after he was gone. That's how close he was to John. Take care of my mother. He said, mother, behold your son. Now, John told us early on in his gospel that another guy named John showed up in Judea. That John's name was, anybody? John the Baptist. All right. The reason he was called John the Baptist was not because he wasn't John the Catholic or John the Methodist. 
Okay, that was not the reason. The reason he was called John the Baptist is because he had done something that no one had ever done before. So let me give you a little bit of history as to how that went. Back in the first century, okay, the first century after Jesus was born, so those years from like zero to 100 as we count them now, here's how it went. In the first century, if a person wanted to become Jewish, so they're a Gentile person, a Roman, a Greek, or Egyptian, whatever, they wanted to become Jewish, they had to go through a ceremony. And that ceremony included a ceremonial washing. Now, in Hebrew, the word for the ceremonial washing is the word tevilah. And it's done in a spring-filled, a naturally-filled bath that is called a mikvah. Okay? Now, it can be done in a mikvah, naturally filled bath from a spring, or in a river, or a place, a, a body of water that is also naturally filled and flowing. So, tevilah, the ceremonial washing, was accomplished by the person converting, immersing themselves into this mikvah, into this body of water. But here's where the practice takes a turn when it comes to John. So, John was at the Jordan River, But he wasn't telling people, hey, go in and and tevilah, go in and immerse yourselves. That would have been typical. Go immerse yourself. That's what you did. John was actually taking a hold of these people, and he was immersing them himself. And the Greek term for one who does that, immerses somebody in the water, is, any guesses? That's right, baptizo, where we get baptism. John, actually, was the first person in recorded history to perform this action for another person. So the, the cleansing and the, and the dunking was part of Jewish custom, but John was the first one to do it for somebody else. Okay? Now, many people from the surrounding area had heard that John was doing this. And so they converged upon the Jordan River to listen to John speak and to see what it was he was up to. And in fact, in his gospel, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark described the scene like this. He said, the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to John, went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, break this down a little bit. It's interesting that Mark says the whole Judean countryside. You get that. Now, again, it's interesting. We we listen to the Bible and we say, yes, we believe the Bible is true. It doesn't lie to us. Everything it says is true. A lot of people are extremely literal, which is good. You need to be literal when you're reading the Bible, but you also need to understand when it's not meant to be literal. And something like this, I'm going to guess, is not meant to be literal, was it the entire Judean countryside? Or was it more like when your kids go, I want to go to the movie, everybody's going, right? I mean, that's more, everybody, is everybody really going? Like, did the, is the president going? Is everybody going? You had that conversation with your kids. What they mean, of course, is no, a lot of people are going, right? And to Mark, that's what it looked like. A lot of people, everybody seems to be going to the Judean countryside. Everybody in the city of Jerusalem is is going out to listen to John the Baptist. So with that thought in mind, now we can try to picture the scene. So picture the scene. You're at the Jordan River and John is standing there. And there aren't just a handful of people scattered about. There were probably hundreds or thousands of people there at the Jordan River watching John do his thing. Now... A little geography. The Jordan River, where John was baptizing, is located about 40 miles from Jerusalem. They did not have Ubers. They did not have cars. They did not have mass transit. How did they get there? They walked. That's a 40-mile walk. 
which meant all of those people in the Judean countryside, all those people in Jerusalem had to get up before the sun and start walking for hours and hours. They probably didn't get there till after sundown. Not only that, the route from Jerusalem to the Jordan River Basin is not the nicest neighborhood. It was a dangerous, little treacherous walk. And then when they arrived, they joined this throng of people crowded in to see and hear John the Baptist doing his thing. Now, according to the biblical description, and by the way, whenever we look at biblical descriptions for historical fact, we also take a look at people who wrote about it who weren't believers, who weren't Christians as we would call them, but just were there at the time and see what they wrote. Because if they tell us the same thing happened, we can go, okay. It seems to make sense. It must have happened because they don't believe in all this, and yet they wrote it. So even according to the Roman Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, even according to the Quran, what Muhammad wrote down in the Quran, John was a sight to see. This really happened. And John was like, whoa, this is really weird. And the Bible tells us he looked like a wild man. In Mark 1.6, Mark describes what he wore. He wore clothing made of camel's hair. Is anybody wearing a camel's hair shirt today? Anybody? No? They're not as popular as in the 80s. They're very popular. They're not. And, and a leather belt around his waist, which, which basically meant he, he wore a rough garment, a garment that would, that would not be comfortable, that would make you itch. It was a garment that was reminiscent of, of the way the Old Testament prophets would dress, like in sackcloth or in, in burlap. And he wore a belt made of sheepskin or, or goatskin. And, and he dined on what? Do you remember what he dined on? Locusts. Yeah, we call locusts grasshoppers now. But that's what a locust is. So he dined. Everybody, anybody ever eat a locust or a grasshopper? I have, actually. They're very popular now. They really are. They make protein bars, and they don't taste too bad, honestly. Check that out. Anyhow. But he ate them sweet with wild honey, so that's better. So if you're eating a bug, wild honey, you're good to go. All this to say that everybody who saw John, now that picture means a little something different to you, doesn't it? What's he eating? Yuck. Anyway, but everybody who saw John, they're not going to forget him. He was a real person, and he was very compelling to look at. And he was so compelling that even the Pharisees, even the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they thought, hmm, maybe the Messiah has come. Nobody's ever drawn a crowd like this before. Everybody in the city, everybody in the town around is just leaving to go listen to this guy. We need to listen to him too. So off they went to see him, and they joined the throngs of crowds that were there to hear him preach. And after he was through, they said to him, so these are religious leaders saying to John, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the guy we've been waiting all these years for? You have drawn one heck of a crowd. I mean, the whole Judean countryside has come here to see you and to hear you. Who are you? Are you the Messiah? And John answered them. Here's what he said. We get this from John's gospel. And again, sorry about the John, John thing, but, you know, I didn't write it. Okay, so here we go. John's gospel, John 1.20. John the Baptist said, I am not the Messiah. So they, the Jewish leaders, asked him again, then who are you? Are you Elijah, the prophet? He said, no, I am not. Are you, are you the prophet? No. He answered, no, I'm not the prophet. Finally, they said, who are you? Like, who are you, buddy? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Tell us so we can tell the rest of the religious leaders whether you're the Messiah or not. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so it's always big when someone in the New Testament goes back to the Old Testament, kind of quotes an Old Testament prophecy that is coming true in their midst. He said, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
make straight the way for the Lord. So the Pharisees who questioned him heard this and they said, wait a minute. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah? Or if you are not Elijah? Or if you are not the prophet? John said this in verse 26, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Now, again, picture the scene. Thousands, thousands, and thousands of people. The Pharisees are asking this question. John says, somebody out there, one who's standing there among you, you don't know who he is, but he is the one who comes after me. He is the one I'm announcing. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, why that sort of thing? Well, that's what servants did. Servants would untie your sandals when you entered into a house, and then they would wash your feet. Remember, we had the whole foot washing thing at the Last Supper. Kind of, that's what, they, that was, that's what servants did. So John's saying, listen, you think I'm something. There's somebody who's coming after me that I'm not even worthy to serve, that I'm not even worthy to be his servant. And then John, who gave us this gospel, John, who was Jesus' closest friend, John, who was an eyewitness to all the things in Jesus' world, John told us this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, so John the Baptist, who'd spent days before this, calling out the sins of people, calling upon these people to repent. He stopped right there, right there in the middle of his baptizing for repentance. And he looked at the crowd and he said, hang on, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is interesting. John cries out, look, look, it's the Lamb of God. And what do you think the people turned and looked for? A lamb. Right? Why would they turn and look for a lamb? Because that's what they did. They were looking for a lamb because even though we understand now who John was talking about, they didn't understand it. Because first off, in the Greek, the translation wasn't really the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The translation in the Greek actually is closer to, look, it's the lamb that God sent. It's God's lamb. Look, God sent a lamb. So what had God done? God had sent a lamb. And the people were used to seeing lambs, right? For 1,500 years. The United States has been around for roughly 240 some odd years. 1,500 years, a lot longer. For 1,500 years, their culture had been sacrificing lambs. Thousands and thousands, if not millions of lambs. They would drain the blood of the lamb, and then they would offer the lamb for sacrifice, and that sacrifice would atone for their sin. Now, it's interesting... In, in the Jewish world, there's two high holidays, they call them. You've heard of them before. I'll explain them to you. Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh means head. Hashanah means of the year. So that's the Jewish New Year. And then there is Yom Kippur. Now, Yom means day, and Kippur means to cover. In Hebrew, a kippah is the covering you put on top of your head. Okay? You've heard the word as maybe kippah or yarmulke. Yarmulke is just the Yiddish word for the same thing. So, for, for 
thousand plus years, they've been sacrificing lambs as a covering over a kippur of all their sins. So that would atone. Atone means to make yourself back in one with God. So at one with God is the way I always like to think of it. And they actually knew, though, that killing all of these animals wasn't going to work permanently. Killing all these animals could not forever atone for or cover over or deliver forgiveness for a sin for a live person. They knew it didn't happen that way, but they knew they had to go through the motions because that was their tradition. 1,500 years of tradition in which when somebody died, something had to die. Blood had to be shed. When somebody sinned against God, a payment had to be made. So look, the Lamb of God to them meant God sent a lamb. So they're looking around for the lamb, that lamb who came to literally lift up and carry off the sins of the world. Now, it's my guess, and I cannot prove this from anywhere, so it's just a guess, but go with me on this. I'm guessing that nobody had any idea what John was talking about. There's no way anybody could have known. The lamb of God carrying away the sins of the world? What the? Huh. That's interesting, John. Anyway, ooh, ooh, baptize me next. I mean, because that's the way people are. It's like, okay, I don't understand that, but I came here for a purpose, so let's get that purpose going. But see, Jesus kind of gave clues about what was going to happen. Throughout his ministry, he left clues that when we look back on John's words, those clues should have alerted people that there was more to John's announcement about a lamb than just an animal. Not only that. For three years, Jesus had been with the 12. He'd been with the disciples. And he shared those parables with them. Remember the parables? Parables are made-up stories that teach a real point. Okay, I'm not minimizing parables. They're very important, and they're filled with truth. But remember, they are made-up stories. He would tell a story as an illustration to explain an important point. So Jesus had shared so many parables with them over time, explaining that one day... The Son of Man would do this. And one day the Son of Man would do that. Remember, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man oftentimes. That's a term for Messiah that we get out of the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Daniel. So Jesus took on that title for himself. And when Jesus told the disciples that the Son of Man would be arrested, well, they just dismissed it. They're like, no, 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 not you, boss. People love you. No one's going to, you see the crowd you're drawing? People can't even get near you. They're not going to arrest you. And whenever Jesus tried to tell them, no, 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 you guys, you're missing the whole point. They, they would smile and nod and then go back to what they were doing. Because come on, this guy's just being, he's self-deprecating. That's all. He's just being humble. Oh, no, not me. No, no, they really didn't believe it. But then one night toward the end of Jesus's life, Jesus gathered with the 12 for what would be their final Passover meal. The magnitude of what went down in that Passover meal is very difficult, quite frankly, for non-Jewish people to grasp. But stay with me because I'm going to walk you through this. This is really amazing. Every time we here at Hammock Street Church celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, what do we do? We talk about Passover, right? Because that's where communion was originated. Passover is an annual holiday. I know you all know that because once a year in the fall, you see matzah being for sale in Publix and there's these big displays. I know you all get that. It's an annual holiday during which Jewish people get together and celebrate the night that God's death angel passed over the homes of all the Jewish slaves in Egypt and took the life of all of the firstborn children of the Egyptian citizens. 
So, the death angel sent by God knew to pass over the Jewish people's houses because of this. Before that happened, God had instructed the Jewish people to slaughter a Passover lamb, a Paschal lamb, and to take the blood of that lamb and put it all around their doors, on the doorposts and on the top part, the lintel, and around the other doorpost. And all who trusted God that night put that blood of the lamb over their door. And when they had done that, they woke up in Egypt as a free and delivered people. Okay, so that was the last straw. They woke up. God had not killed them. God had taken the firstborn of Egypt. And Jewish people said, we got to get out of here. And that's when they left. So every year, Jewish people gathered, still do, and celebrated Passover. You get it? God's angel is passing over them. Clever, right? Anyway, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his 12 disciples at what we call the Last Supper. And here's what he said. He said, the most offensive thing that anyone could possibly say at Passover. Did you know that? What Jesus said was, in fact, so offensive, so blasphemous, that the disciples might have been justified calling the religious leaders and saying, we want this guy stoned to death for what he just said. They certainly would have been justified if at that moment when he said it, they'd have just gotten up and said, we are out of here, and they left the dinner right there. So what was it? What was it that Jesus said that was so offensive? Here's what he said. This comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks. Remember, we do our communion. We'll do that next week. He gave thanks in Hebrew. That's why I say it, because he gave thanks. And he said to them, this is my body given for you. Do this. In other words, eat this in remembrance of me. So essentially, here's what Jesus was saying to them. Don't miss this. Okay, guys. I know you've been celebrating the Passover your whole lives and your parents and your grandparents and all the way back. And I know that we Jews celebrate the Passover And we specifically do it in a particular reason. We celebrate how when the Israelites demonstrated their faith in God by putting that blood around the door, we celebrate how God then delivered them for that faith. But but guys, listen, from now on, when you celebrate Passover, I don't want you talking about that anymore. When you celebrate Passover from now on, I want you to think about me. Trust me, when I tell you, That would be like me coming up here on the Sunday before Christmas and saying, hey, guys, on Christmas from now on, we're not going to celebrate Jesus' birth anymore. On Christmas, we're celebrating my birth. We're celebrating my birthday. From now on, Christmas is about Russell's birthday. Let's pray. Would you come back the next week to Hammock Street Church? Or would you go, that dude has lost it. What is going on? He's trying to change the meaning of Christmas. When I changed the music style when I got here, I had a revolution on my hands, let alone. But that's what Jesus did on that Passover night. And the disciples were stunned. They're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to celebrate God delivering us from Egypt anymore. We're going to celebrate you? I mean, boss, we love you, but you? To which Jesus responded, yep. From now on, this bread is going to represent my broken body. And he kept going. This cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So now, from now on, the bread represents my body. And this wine represents my blood, which will be shed to atone for your sins. Because I'm the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. 
they did not understand that at the time. They didn't understand what he was saying, but they didn't leave. And they didn't report him to the Jewish authorities. Why? Why didn't they do that? They had every right to. It was Jewish law. They should have. Why? Because they'd been with him for three years. They'd watched him heal the diseased and the sick and the broken. They'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they thought, yeah, sure, the boss seems a little off today. But he can heal. He can raise the dead. I'm sticking with that guy. Something about that guy. I'm not going anywhere. Now, that night, Jesus was arrested. And all those courageous men who didn't go anywhere when he committed that ultimate act of blasphemy, well, they didn't stick around. They all lost their faith and they all ran away. And then Jesus was was beaten and he was ultimately crucified. Now, I want you to check this out because this is really something most people miss. I missed it the first time through. This is really cool. The gospel writer gives us a very interesting detail in this story that seems, as you read it, just totally irrelevant at first blush. But in retrospect, it gives us a very clear theological understanding of how Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins. So remember, here's what he said. He said, the wine no longer represents the blood of the Passover lamb that has been shed every single Passover for 1,500 years in Egypt. Jesus said instead, from this moment on, the wine represents the blood of God's new covenant. In other words, Jesus said, the wine now represents my blood, my blood that will symbolize God's brand new covenant, God's brand new agreement with his people. And it's in this text that Matthew records an interesting and important detail. So watch this. Stay with me. Jesus was crucified. And when Jesus was crucified, he didn't suffocate and die. Why is that relevant? Well, here's why. You can Google crucifixion. Don't do it now, but you can go home and Google crucifixion. The way people died when they were crucified was by suffocation. Okay, when a person was crucified, the weight of their body would pull down, would bear down, which caused their lungs to be compressed. Kind of like if you've ever seen a constrictor, an anaconda, a boa constrictor, a python, what they do, the way they kill their prey is every time the prey exhales, they tighten the coils so they can't inhale again. And then they exhale again, tighten up even further until you can't draw a breath, you suffocate and you die. It causes your lungs to be compressed. And the longer a person would stay on a cross, the less they were able to keep their lungs open because they were getting weaker and weaker and gravity was pulling them down and down. So it's squishing and compressing their lungs. And so what they would usually do is they would push up on their feet because their feet are nailed in. So they kind of have a place to push up. They would push up on their feet, which would open their lungs a little bit so they could breathe as long as possible. But they couldn't do it forever. You Get worn out after a while. And after the Romans would get tired of watching the prisoners struggle to breathe, the Romans would just walk up, take a club, and break their legs. That way they can't push up anymore. Their legs are broken. They'd suffocate quickly, die quickly, and the Romans could get on with their after, you know, event, lunch, or whatever it was. So crucified people suffocated to death. But when the Romans came to break Jesus' legs, do you remember what happened? Jesus was already dead. Why? Because... 
as a result of the scourging he received, the scourging was, remember, he was whipped and beaten with the cat of nine tails and his back was flayed open and blood everywhere. And then there were other beatings. And remember, they kicked him, they spit on him and they beat him. And, and then they put a crown of thorns onto his head and that caused it bleeding. And then he had to carry the heavy cross. Remember that? And he was carrying it up the hill of Calvary and it's tearing up his back, scraping across this torn open, bloody back. Remember that? Because of all of that, while Jesus was on the cross, he bled out. Remember when they stuck that spear in his side, water came out. That meant there was no more blood. He was exsanguinated. He bled out. They came to break his legs, but he'd already bled to death. Now look at this more closely. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what happened. Jesus poured out his blood. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, who came to lift up and carry away the sins of the world, poured out his blood for God's people. So what can wash away your sin? You can't. You tried. I can't. I tried. Nothing works. So what can wash away your sin? 20 years after this event... 20 years after the crucifixion, 20 years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul when he started off? He was a Pharisee, hated Christians. The Apostle Paul tried to single-handedly wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. He almost succeeded. That Apostle Paul met the risen Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus. We've talked about that story. And Paul gives his interpretation of what John the Baptist predicted, what Jesus talked about that night, and what the eyewitnesses experienced. Listen to Paul's words here in Colossians 2. Jesus forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, Jesus has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus forgave us. All of our sins. What does Paul mean by that? As he said in that verse 14, our sin created a debt that we owe to God. Not only do we owe it to God, but we owe it to ourselves. And in order to get rid of that cloud of sin, the burden of sin that hangs over our lives, that sin that gives rise to a debt that we owe God, that's who we are. That's our sin nature. That's our shame. That's our guilt. And Jesus' death on the cross canceled all of that debt. Through Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, you have been forgiven. Specifically, your debt to God has been canceled. Jesus has taken away our legal indebtedness to God. He picked it up and he carried it off. And with that in mind, we could ask Paul, Hey, Paul, what do you think could wash away my sin? And in response, Paul would say nothing. Nothing you could ever do. Nothing but the blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because when he died, he canceled your indebtedness to God. And he canceled your indebtedness to yourself. And here's the good news. You don't have to forgive yourself. Because yourself was already forgiven on the cross. So Paul would say, if you want to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how you get your sins washed away, that's your own business. And I would say, that's your own business. If that's what you want to do, I can't push you into anything. I don't have to come in here and close the deal, make you sign on the dotted line. I can't tell you what to do. And if you want to look for some religious system that will give you advice, there are plenty out there. And now that we all have access to the Internet, we can find them all. But there's only one person in history 
who has stepped up and said, it's not a system. It's not a formula. I am the solution to your sin problem. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 10. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. See, it, it sounds arrogant to some people. It sounds unrealistic to some people, but Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to pick up and carry away the sins of the world, including your sins and including my sins. And and as for all the sins we've spent a lifetime committing, they no longer need to remind us how short we have fallen. Because instead, through Jesus, God has transformed those sins into memorials of God's grace and his love and his peace his forgiveness. What can wash away my sin? Nothing we will ever do. Only the blood of Jesus. If we were to say to Paul, what can wash away your sin? Paul would say nothing but the blood of Jesus. Peter, what do you think? What can wash away your sin? You denied Jesus. You denied the faith. What could wash away that sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. John, what about you? Nothing but the blood of my Savior. James, you're Jesus' brother. You didn't even believe in him until the resurrection. What do you think will wash away that sin? Nothing but the blood of my brother, Jesus. So the question you have to wrestle with, if you want to find your adult starting point, is this. If, If God doesn't condemn you as his child, who are you to condemn you as a child of God? All right? Now, I'm not trying to talk you into anything. I used to get paid to do that. I don't like to do that. I just want you to know, you don't have to carry this around. This doesn't have to be the way you live. You don't have to carry your sin and your shame and your guilt and your burden around for the rest of your life. And you don't have to earn your way out of it. See, what your heavenly father is asking you to do is not do something. Every other religious system is going to ask you to do something. There are a lot of to-dos in this world, and some of them are very good things. Be kind to your brother. Be kind to your parents. Help people in need. But in Christianity, we're requested to simply believe something, to trust something. That when Jesus died, he died for your sin. And he picked it up and he carried it off. And if God doesn't condemn you, who are you to condemn you? You've already been forgiven. So the question is, have you received that forgiveness? Remember the story about Abraham a few weeks ago? Abraham made a single decision. He said he decided to trust God. And with that, God gave Abraham the gift of righteousness. And the New Testament authors tell us in the exact same way, when we place our trust in the fact that Jesus' death paid for our sins and we're given a right standing with God as a result of that, that single act of faith is how you receive what's been done for you and what's been done for all mankind. So today, as we wrap up, if you've never done that, And if today you've decided, I am tired of trying to earn my way out of a past that I just can't earn my way out of. If you're tired of carrying around all that guilt and all that shame that you're never going to get rid of because nothing else will wash it away. If you've convinced yourself of the fact that, if you understand the fact that Jesus died for you. And he died not just for you, but for the sins of the world. and, And your sins in particular, if that's what you've decided now, 
I want to lead you in a prayer. A prayer in which you can express to God the faith he's looking for in order to apply to you personally what he's made available to the whole world. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Savior. Amen? Won't you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe that when Jesus died, it paid for my sin. I believe that he's the savior of the world. I believe that nothing I will ever do would pay for my own sin. I need you to pay for it. I believe that Jesus' death paid for my sin. So I'm placing all my trust in Jesus' death on the cross as full payment. Help me to remember in those times when the guilt and shame come crowding back in to take a moment, call a timeout, simply stop and thank you for what's been done for me. God, I love you praise you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.